Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-hosts this podcast. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, the author of The Watergate Girl, co-host of Hashtag Sisters-in-Law, and this podcast, and an MSNBC legal analyst. I'm also the person who wears hashtag Jill's pins, and today's pin is a very special one in honor of our guest, Senator Doug Jones, former Senator Doug Jones, and his role in the confirmation process of our soon-to-be new Justice Ketanji Brown-Jackson. And it is a pin that says nine superimposed on the Supreme Court in reference to the question asked of Justice Ginsburg, when will there be enough women on the court? And her answer was, when there are nine. On the 2020 campaign trail, President Biden promised voters that if elected president, he would nominate the first black woman to the Supreme Court. And he did. In March of this year, President Biden nominated Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court to replace outgoing Justice Stephen Breyer. She is beyond qualified to serve, and despite a contentious confirmation hearing, the Senate confirmed Ketanji Brown-Jackson to the Supreme Court, not only fulfilling President Biden's promise to the American people, but also making long overdue history with the first Black woman confirmed to be a Supreme Court justice. And that brings us to today's guest, Doug Jones, who helped Ketanji Brown-Jackson through the confirmation process. He was her shepherd during that process as the White House SCOTUS nomination advisor for legislative affairs. You probably also know Doug as the former U.S. Senator from Alabama. He served from 2018 to 2021. And before that, he was the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. He also is a commentator for CNN, And we are very excited to have Doug with us today to talk about a number of issues. Thank you so much. And if it's okay, can I call you Doug? Absolutely. Okay, so. Jill, I've been called a lot worse in Alabama. (laughs) I bet you have. And I want to hear about all of those. But we're really (laughs) delighted to have you with us. And before we get to the serious questions, I want to ask you about something that I got a tip from my sister-in-law. Joyce Vance, and she said that we had to ask you about your baseball collection. So would you tell me about that? Yeah, there's there's part of them. That's not many, but I I don't know. I I love collecting autographs. And a few years ago, a buddy, I mean, I say a few, it's been quite a few now, got me interested in in putting autographs on baseballs. And I sometimes will travel with a baseball or two in case I run into somebody. Um, and I just started collecting those uh, years ago. One of the real prides, and it's not on the collection you just saw, uh, after um, 2018, when I was in the Senate for the 116th Congress, in my reception area in the Hart Building, I had two cabinets that had 100 baseballs, each signed by uh, all 100 United States senators, oh. labeled by state. Uh, you know, it was it's really an interesting conversation piece. I just I like collecting memorabilia. I think, you know, either either eBay is going to have a field day when my kids sell us all after I'm gone or something. I don't know what, but it's it's fun for me. 
Oh, I think it's provenance makes a difference too, that it comes from you is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. That That's a remarkable collection. I love it. Are any of them baseball stars or are they all? No, yeah, or- I, I've got some really cool baseball. I mean, I started mainly with baseball players, but I've got some great, I mean, the Mickey Mantle and a Joe DiMaggio. And it's a lot of the all-stars that I, I've met over the years, Reggie Jackson, but wow. I've also got presidents. I've got Ford, Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter and, uh, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, um, and Barack Obama. Uh, I've got Joe Biden's is actually, he signed it as a senator. It's right behind me. But oh. I, didn't get, I didn't get Donald Trump because I'd have to use a soccer ball instead of a baseball for his team. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. But I also see behind you a picture of Bobby Kennedy. Is that yeah. a signed one too? No, no, I don't have a signed one of, of Bobby Kennedy. Uh, those are relative. Those are pretty expensive if you want to try to buy one. Mm-hmm. I do have uh, his. Um, I do have Joe Kennedy uh, Jr. when Joe was in Congress, and it was funny when I was doing some work with Joe the Third. He was commenting on the poster. That's an original from uh, oh, wow. the '68 wow. campaign. And I've also got a coffee mug back there that my son gave me, but. Um, yeah, K- Kennedy signatures are pretty tough to come by. Oh, yeah, I, it's, you know, he he would have been the attorney general if I'd become a lawyer earlier, but he was assassinated the night before I graduated law school. Oh, so wow. I will never, ever forget that. Uh, I can imagine. Yeah. Oh, my. Okay, so well, and, and tell us what you're doing now, because I don't think we really know that. I mean, we're talking <laughs> to you because of your incredible role in yes. the – uh, confirmation process for a fantastic nominee for now soon to be Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. But what are you doing? I, I, I'll tell you, Jill, I am as busy as I've ever been. Uh, once I left uh, the White House uh, with uh, Judge Jackson's confirmation, I'm back uh, part time. I'm, I'm uh, half time with a law firm of Errant uh, Fox Schiff. Oh. Prime counsel doing a lot of government relations, not lobbying. I'm not a registered lobbyist, but I'm half time with them. I'm a distinguished senior fellow at the Center for American Progress. Uh, And I'm also doing a lot of just political stuff. I've got a C3 and a C4 in which we're trying to do uh, some research into voter engagement in the South to try to figure out, especially for younger voters, ages 45 uh, and younger, why they don't vote in the same numbers as their older counterparts. And I've got a, a political action committee that's actually both a multi-candidate and a super PAC called the Right Side of History PAC, where we're going to hope to have some impact going forward to mm. try to help my friends get reelected, get some new folks in there, uh, and try to make a difference across this country with a voice that I think uh, is badly needed. I'm sure that you will make that difference. And boy, do we need it. So... Good luck to you on that. And uh, Victor, did you want to go ahead? Yeah, I mean, let, let's start with Katanji Brown Jackson. Um, she made history, as you well know, by becoming the first black woman to be nominated and confirmed to the Supreme Court. Uh, let's begin maybe by talking about the process of getting her nominated and confirmed, because many in our audience, I think, would find it fascinating. And you had a key role in it. So first, talk to us about your position as White House SCOTUS uh, nomination advisor for legislative affairs and uh, what that entailed. Sure. You know, first of all, I, I think it's important for folks to realize that the, the process of selecting a Supreme Court nominee by any administration starts long before there's ever a vacancy. 
I think on day one, probably even during the transition, there are certain people within an administration making a list uh, of potential nominees should a president get the opportunity to nominate a Supreme Court. It's one of the most consequential um, uh, decisions that a president of the United States would have. So when Justice Breyer uh, decided he would retire uh, and made that announcement, there was already a process in place where there was a list. As everybody knows, the president had said uh, early on that this nomination was going to go to an African-American female. And so there was a list already in place. And the White House counsel, Dana Remus, had uh, did a wonderful job of putting in place a process that included both research of potential nominees going through their life history, um, getting that information on a, on a rotating and regular basis to uh, the president. And, and then, of course, there's always the barking dogs that come in and help with the process. <laughs> One minute, I'm putting him away. <laughs> Oh, today is, uh, everything's going great. Um, at least it was, she was on MSNBC this weekend and, and all of a sudden live TV, you hear uh, that bark. I, I would have, I would have brought in my girls, uh, Scout and Dakota, if I'd have known this was going to be a, oh my gosh, a family. A yeah, they would have, they would have really perked up if they had, uh, <laughs> if, if they had been in here. So, yeah. um, oh my God. Okay. Brisby wants to be a TV star. Apparently. Well, t- t- what can t- t- I tell t- you? I, I kept I kept my British lab scouting Dakota out of here because they're all the time when I'm doing these trying to climb up in my lap and look at the camera, <laughs> you know. So we would love that. Bring them back in, and then okay. come in, and they can have fun. Happy to do that. Um, so I I literally got the call within a day after uh, after Justice Breyer's public announcement. I, I got a call asking if I would consider this. And of course, that was a, just an amazing opportunity. And, uh, you know, what the White House had was a process in place that had folks doing all the research necessary to give the president the information he needed to make a decision. Uh, that's number one. Then number two, we were putting in place for when a decision was made that we would do a rollout with both media as well as uh, senators and, and, and the Speaker of the House and others on Capitol Hill. They brought in not only uh, myself uh, to work with kind of legislative and do the, you know, do some of the relevant part of this when it comes to uh, research, but also Mignon Moore was brought in to help with outreach to various groups to try to get people engaged and committed on this. And they brought in Ben LaBolt, who helped with the media uh, to handle all the media and help point me in the right direction. And from that point on, the minute Judge Jackson was named, I mean, we literally had, as the media said, there were three finalists this, and we had three rollout plans for each, one for each finalist. And late at night, the Thursday night before, we were able to take one and put it at the top of the uh, pile and started the next morning bright and early. She was announced on Friday. By Saturday, she was back at the White House preparing. Because you've got to understand, this process was a, a, a relook at her entire life and career, many of things of which she probably forgot about. That process started as long as well as trying to get the uh, you know uh, meetings with senators on the Hill. And we wanted to get as many senators in. Anybody that wanted to meet with Judge Jackson, we wanted to make sure we had an opportunity to do it. So it was an intense process 
really from the moment that Justice Breyer announced his resignation. So we want to get into that process later. But first, on your position as White House Supreme Court nomination advisor for legislative affairs, was this the first time that there was such a position? And, and I guess another part to that is you mentioned the White House Counsel's Office. And I um, have a friend who works in the White House Counsel's Office, not on the Supreme Court nomination side. But she explained to me that they also work on Supreme Court nominees. And oh, yeah. did you work with them? And what yes. distinguished your work from their work? I, I was I actually worked in the White House Counsel's office. Technically, I was in the White House Counsel's office, not with the legislative affairs. Uh, White House Counsel Dana Remus kind of ran the show. She was the point person for all of this, uh, working, of course, with Ron Klain, the chief of staff. And it was a it was a process where you had White House Counsel as well as others that were kind of divided up. Some were doing the research and helping prep Judge Jackson with regard to the uh, the issues that are out there. I mean, you had a whole series of briefing books on issues. We had to have briefing books on her record, the decisions she's made, the opinions that she's written, her time as a public defender and her time uh, in the, uh, the sentencing commission. So all of that was working really closely together. And again, with the White House communications team, we wanted to continue to uplift um, Judge Jackson to showcase her incredible qualifications for this position uh, and the, uh, also to make sure we reached out to folks that we thought might be available, you know, might be endorsements, people that knew her that could endorse this nomination, uh, both Republican and Democrat. So uh, you talked about the process of um used by the White House to identify and evaluate candidates. There was a lot of speculation um, about Michelle Childs and Leandra Kruger also in the running. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that evaluation and um, kind of narrowing down that list to ultimately uh, come to uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson? Well, only in this context. I don't think it would really be fair to uh, anyone else if I started making a comparison between Mm -hmm. three finalists. What I can tell you is that the president, the vice president, White House counsel, uh, myself, we were all engaged in this process. Um, research was being done. We were monitoring the media and the tweets to kind of see where people, um, because you know, you learn a fair amount of what people are gauging. So if there was an issue that came up about any partic- potential uh, nominee, we'd look at that and kind of run it to ground. All of that was given to the president in a, uh, on a daily basis. He was reviewing this. Uh, we had several meetings with the president going over uh, the, the candidates uh, what people considered to be the pros for each candidate, what people considered to be the cons. At the end of the day, this was his decision and his decision alone. The one thing I can tell you, Victor, that, that gets a lot of play out there uh, and people think that this might have some effect. I know I heard it from Republicans who were concerned that certain groups were pushing this person or that person. The fact is the president and the, his team None of that was part of the prep that I was involved in. None of that was a part of uh, the, the political calculation was not a part of it. This was a president who wanted to make sure he got this uh, right in his mind. You know, and the thing is, again, I, I don't want to try to compare any candidates because they were just remarkable candidates that he was looking at. But at the end of the day, um, you, you meet with the president, you talk about it. He gets a sense from folks of what they think, where they are. But 
I, I can tell you this president really put in a lot of time and he was really looking for, cause he knew that how consequential this pick was going to be. And at the end of the day, it was his pick. And, you know, we kind of started getting the message late in the day on Thursday before the announcement was going to be made Friday uh, afternoon. And uh, that's when we started taking the three big binders that we had and pushing two to the side and pulling out one to say, all right, who do we need to call? And it was a process. I mean, even the rollout, you can imagine, was an interesting process. The president had calls that he needed to make. The vice president had calls that she needed to make. Um, I had calls to make. Dana Remus had calls to make. Lisa Terrell with legislative had calls to make. And the whole thing was run as a process from start to finish. And I think that what Dana put together was pretty remarkable. And it ran with very, very few hitches. One of the things that I found fascinating about the whole just nomination process was there was so much political pressure from Republicans um, to nominate a certain type of judge. I think it was Kruger. I'm wondering if you guys how you guys navigated that political pressure, if at all um, you paid attention to that? You know, I, I don't think, well, you pay attention to everything. I mean, the president talked about the fact that he got, uh, that he takes the role of the Senate in, in, in vice and consent uh, very serious. And so he reached out personally to a number of senators. Um, I reached out to some. Uh, White House Counsel's office reached out to some. We met with some senators before um, the nominee was even announced to just kind of talk through uh, the process. But at the end of the day, it's his call. And uh, he wanted to make sure that he was selecting a nominee that he believed could get uh, confirmed, number one, but also that would, that in his mind was the right choice. And so there was a lot of factors that went into his decision. I didn't go over those factors with him. He made that call uh, and he, but he was well aware of the, who was promoting who, who was not promoting uh, others, and consequences on any one decision that he made. There, he knew there would be some blowback from certain quarters, no matter which way you go. That's the nature of the beast right now, unfortunately, that we were going to see that immediately. It didn't matter who he picked. There was going to be blowback from the RNC and others saying that this was just another um, you know, uh, liberal justice who was going to make policy uh, and not follow the rule of law. We knew that that was coming. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, he, he and he alone took in everything and made the, made the decision. And he made a good one. But as you know, uh, this is an era in which Mitch McConnell says, oh, well, in the next two years, there probably we wouldn't even allow a vote if we win the House. And um, uh, or if we win the Senate, because right now it's 50-50. And you didn't really need any Republican votes. You could have gone ahead because the uh, filibuster has been changed for Supreme Court nominees so that all you needed was 50 plus the vice president's vote and uh, your nominee would be uh, confirmed. But I'm wondering, did you consider trying to bring in Republicans and how hard was that process? Of course. I mean, I, I said all along that we were not going to take any vote for granted for or against. It's the reason why we set about to say if if you, Senator, um, want to meet with this nominee, we're going to make it happen. 
And she ended up meeting with 97 United States senators. And that's a pretty remarkable yeah. uh, record. So we didn't take any vote for granted. But I also said, you know, that our, our goal was to get as many votes possible. But our objective was to get her confirmed. And we, we there were a number of things. In fact, Jill, I, I may be one of the few people that was somewhat disappointed in the vote. Because I really believe with some of the some of the folks that I knew um, and have relationships with, I really think that there were others that really kind of wanted to vote this way. And at the end of the day, couldn't bring themselves to go against the politics of it. And that's unfortunate. So the fact that we got three, I think, says a lot. In fact, we got uh, Senator Romney, who voted against Judge Jackson for the Court of Appeals. But yet they had a chance to meet this time, uh, go over things, talk about this. Uh, and so I felt pretty good at the end of the day about getting 53, but I was still disappointed we couldn't got, have gotten more because I'm going to tell you, I, you know, I worked for Senator Heflin from Alabama back in 1979 uh, in 1980. And in that era and in uh, that time, this judge would have gotten 80, 90, maybe even a unanimous vote. She's that qualified. She's not an activist judge. Um, and she would have gotten that kind of support. But in this day and age, the partisanship at the end of the day uh, comes through, and it's just very, very difficult to get more than we got. Well, you did obviously a wonderful job, but you are correct that in any other reasonable time, she would have had unanimous consent. And it is it was one of the ugliest, nastiest hearings that I have ever witnessed, probably that anyone has ever witnessed. And I'm, I'm wondering, well, I, I want to ask a couple, couple of questions about that. One is when she met with the 97 senators, were the meetings similar to what we saw or did the cameras make them act in this ugly, horrible way? Was, well, were, were the yeah. meetings in person okay? No, the, the, the meetings in person were very nice. They were very cordial. They were engaging. That doesn't mean that she was not asked, you know, the, you know, tough, tough questions that you would expect any nominee to be asked about her, the way she judges and some things that she has written in the past and, and certain decisions. Uh, but the, the, the meetings were all very cordial. The meetings, everybody was in, in, engaging. And I think that was important because it was especially important for her because she then knew that when the lights went on and the cameras turned on, that when she got those kind of nasty questions, they weren't personal. It was purely political. She mentioned that, I think, to, to Senator Brown. Uh, he asked her after the hearing when we met with him about that and, and how she could keep that composure. And she said exactly that. Everybody was nice. They were engaging. I expected tough questions um, during that time, and I got those. But they were engaging to me. They they clearly were engaging with Senator Jones, who they knew, um, and that just allowed her to kind of step back and say, "Whatever happens in that hearing is political." But I want to say this too, Jill, because I think some of the annex, um, or as um, Senator Sass called it, jackassery, um, <laughs> kind of overshadowed some other things because you had three or four. Uh, senators who engaged in, in what Senator Sass called the jackassery. But I have to tell you that overall, I think Senator Grassley really did a pretty good job with his caucus. We had a lot of people staying there that asked tough questions. They couldn't get there. 
But I, I overall, there were a lot of folks that delved into her background, went through the constitutional interpretations, all the things you would expect. Some got a little edgy a little bit, but that's to be expected too. But really, out of the 11 Republican senators, you had about four that I think really, and that's what everybody has focused on, but it, it, was, it was not unexpected that that would happen. And I appreciate, and, and Senator Grassley, the first time I talked to him, said, Doug, I'm going to do everything I can to try to keep this on a civil plane and to make sure. And I, I think overall, he didn't do a bad job of that at all. He just, you know, <laughs> you can't control some folks when they're, they're seeing, you know, where they want to move their office from the Hart building to Pennsylvania, down Pennsylvania Avenue. Well, I thought it was nasty and unexpectedly uncivil in many, many ways. I, I was really horrified at the attacks on her. And yes, it's one thing to say, okay, it's political, it's not personal. But when you are the subject of being asked ridiculous questions that are completely irrelevant to the confirmation process, um, her child pornography cases, critical race theory, there were so many things. Um, and it's, it's particularly hard. And I want to ask this question as a woman, because I know that sometimes men jump to the defense of women under attack. But as a Supreme Court nominee, and not that I've been a Supreme but just as a lawyer, my instinct is I need to protect myself. Did you feel any instinct to try to somehow get someone to protect her? Now, and then let's look at uh, Senator Cory Booker, who really brought tears to my eyes and to many people. I mean, it was a memorable incident. But talk about that and talk about how do you protect a Supreme Court nominee from this kind of ugly attack? Well, first of all, you prepare her, I think, for the attacks. She is the best line of defense. The nominee is absolutely the best line of defense. And I think by her being able to set aside the personal attack and see it as, you remember, Jill, the the way she answered the questions about how she goes about judging. She says she has a process. And the first thing she does in that process when she's got any case is to remove any personal feelings or biases. Uh, And she does an amazing job and she was very consistent. She did the same thing in that confirmation hearing. She set aside that personal feeling. And, you know, I, I think she's got an incredible amount of grace and discipline. Yes. Um, you know, I, I, I have been accused of, of, of having a shot collar being on me that somebody was controlling to keep me from coming over uh, my chair and, and just jumping in the fray. Um, but she w- was really remarkable. And I think the first line of defense is the nominee themselves. They've got to be the one because at the end of the day, that's the spotlight. And she's got to defend this. And I think the other Democrats, I think, really did a pretty good job of coming to her defense. But, but coming to her defense by having her explain the issues, having to, to kind of go to school, so to speak, with some of these folks and explain the judging. What we didn't want to do, and I think that in America today, and I've seen it over and over, I've got asked about it in the media, 
I think there is this tendency that when you see an attack, you want to just simply attack back. And that was not the way to do this. I mean, I, I tell people all the time that in America today, we, we seem to have in politics adopted Newton's third law of motion, that for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Yeah. And it it's really not a good and healthy thing. So what we had tried to do with some of our communication strategy, as well as working with members of the judiciary and others that were supporting her, was to say, look, let's push back on the facts. Let's don't push back personally on anybody that may attack her. Push back on the facts. And we had all the facts in our favor, by the way. Push back on the facts and then continue to lift her up. And I think it was really effective the way we did that. I think she ended up with a with over 60% of America saying they would vote to confirm her. Uh, I wish that other senators had paid attention to that. But it was not easy. But again, her fir- the first line of defense is that nominee because the cameras are focused right there. And um, it, was a, it was an interesting dynamic to watch and to watch her and her grace to be able to take it and at the same time try to explain to somebody who really didn't know what they were talking about, about how to judge and what it's like to be sitting as a judge when you sentence somebody uh, to prison and all that you have to take into account. None of those folks that attacked her had a clue. They'd never been right. in a criminal court in their life. Right. Although some of them should have been, but uh, that's a different story. Um, I mean, I would certainly rather have Cory Booker defending me and doing what he did than to have Will Smith. So well, I think know, that was good. Cory, I, I really, I really don't think Cory defended her as much as he defended this entire process and yeah, and yeah. and talked about the importance and how joyous this whole thing. I'll tell you the whole even before Cory Booker said it. Uh, that was the theme at the White House. This is a joyous occasion, and we are not going to let anybody take that away because we felt good going into the hearing that we were she was going to get confirmed. And I think I think Corey, the ben, biggest benefit of Corey was that everybody was tired. It had been a long day. She had taken so many uh, you know uh, hits, and it was a time to relax and remember the significance and the inspiration that she was bringing to this. And that was an element of defense, but it was also an element to say, let me tell you something, America, this is, this is just damn important. And this is why it is so important. Forget what they're talking about. It was a, it was a remarkable moment to be in that hearing room. I've got to tell you. So one of the parts that I found most inspiring just as a student was her answer to California Senator Padilla about, um, her time at Harvard, her first year, and how she persevered. And you saw that clearly throughout the confirmation hearing. Um, And I want to ask, after the confirmation hearings, walk us through what you all did until the Senate ultimately took the vote. (laughs) We continued to meet with senators. I mean, it was, you know, fortunately, she had been primed. I mean, she had gone through 40 or 50 meetings before the hearing. And then went through the hearing. So in terms of, there were not going to be any surprises anywhere. And we continued to meet with senators. I mean, she, we gave, she got a little bit of a break over that weekend to kind of chill and relax a little bit. But come Monday, she was back on the Hill, uh, set up in the VP's office in the Dirksen building where some mainly Democrats were coming in that day to talk and to say hello. 
And then we continue to meet with, with Republican senators, again, anybody that won't want. So we continued those meetings right up until the time, I think the last one occurred the day after the first vote. Remember, it was a tie vote in the committee on a Monday. Right. And at night, there was a discharge vote. Uh, we continued to meet on that Tuesday and met several senators on Tuesday. So she didn't stop. She worked so hard um, at, at this. She really put in the time. I was so impressed by um, her just the ability to, to absorb and to take and to listen. And that's going to be the making of a good justice. She would, she would talk. She would maybe argue a little bit. But at the end of the day, she was listening to all that was being said, just like she says she does in judging, taking it all in so that she could then put things and do things uh, in her way. And I think she's going to be an amazing addition to a court that is so damn fractured right now that it's just really somewhat sad. And, and we do want to talk about what she will add. But I, I want to ask uh, before Victor asks the next question, who were the three senators she did not meet with? And what was the reason that there wasn't those meetings? You know, to be honest with you, I'm not even sure. I know that both uh, that Senator Paul, Rand Paul and Senator Daines, but I know that with Steve Daines, it was more of a logistical issue that came mm-hmm. up twice that we couldn't. And, 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 and Senator Paul, there was nobody that was just a jerk about this. It was basically, look, we got a compressed time. You know where I stand. You know, there's really not a whole lot of point uh, in this, which was fine. It was given the opportunity. It's at least candid. I know there's a lot of criticisms that we can all make about Senator Paul. And I'll be honest with you, I'd have to go through the list. I've never even really tried to figure out who the third one uh, might have been. That was all being coordinated with the scheduling people. So, But I don't think anything was, there was nothing that was, you know, there was nothing that was ugly about any of that at all. It was not, it was not that in any way. So I have no doubt that she's going to be an amazing Supreme Court justice. Uh, what Do you know when she's going to actually take her seat on the bench um, and what she's doing in the meantime to prepare for that? Um, I don't know when she's going to take uh, office. Um, justice Breyer uh, had indicated in his resignation that he would be there through the end of the term, uh, whenever that might be. And I'm sure he will resign immediately. It will take effect, you know, pretty immediate. And I would assume that she will get sworn in relatively soon after that uh, in order to start getting ready already for the October uh, term. She's kind of in this never-never land right now. Um, She's a confirmed Supreme Court justice who doesn't take the bench, but she's still a confirmed Court of Appeals judge who's been sworn in, but can't handle any cases, (laughs) you know, because she's going to move up. So, I hope she is relaxing a little bit, going to a couple of the spas that she, her favorite spas from around the country uh, that she likes, spending some time with her family, uh, who was amazing, by the way. Her family, both her mom and dad, as well as her in-laws and her children, they're just an amazing group of people. So I hope she's relaxing a little bit because the the, the world, she's, she always kidded about the, the world changed the minute she got the phone call. And, you know, the marshal showed up at her door to drive her and she couldn't drive anymore. The world really has is going to change for her the minute she is sworn in. And uh, so hopefully she's doing a little relaxing. 
she's going to need it. And I just remember when you mentioned her family, that one uh, viral photo of her daughter looking at her at the uh, Supreme Court confirmation hearings. It was really something special. Um, yeah. I want, yeah. Let me tell you, Victor, I, I want to tell a little story about this because yeah. th- that was such a special moment. Um, if, if y'all remember, Judge Jackson's name was actually mentioned when uh, Justice uh, Scalia died. She was mentioned as a possibility. She was a district court judge at that time. And her daughter, who was, uh, I guess, 14 or 15 at the time, maybe younger, I can't remember, came in at that time and said, Mom, you really need to apply for this. Yeah, there's this opening and you need to apply. And she said, honey, it doesn't work that way. You don't apply. You know, this is something the president will do and, and, and he will pick. She said, well, I'm going to go write him a letter to tell him to pick you. And she did. She wrote oh a nice God. letter to President Obama that Judge Jackson still has to this day. That was so sweet about how qualified her mama is uh, to be uh-huh. on the United States Supreme Court. It's a great story. Wow. No, that's such an inspiring story. I want to ask, okay, so let's transition to her time soon to be on the bench. Um, And I want to relate this to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was known as the queen of dissenters, and many of her dissents still get quoted beyond the legal community. I'm wondering if you foresee Justice uh, uh, Jackson as being that kind of justice, given the makeup of the court. You know, I think that's hard to say right now. Um, I, I, I could certainly see her doing that because I think she has a special voice. And I, I just like uh, Justice uh, Ginsburg did. I think she's got a unique voice and people are going to be watching and listening and hanging on everything that she says. At the same time, I, instinctively, I think she is going to want to be a consensus builder if it's at all possible. It may not be possible on this court, but if you go back and you look at her history, particularly with the sentencing commission, You know, she served on the sentencing commission, Jill, with some very conservative judges, um, including my friend Bill Pryor, who's the 11th Circuit judge that is conservative as you come. And 97 percent of the the, uh, actions that were taken by the sentencing commission, 97 percent were unanimous. And, you know, one would like to think that she could bring some consensus building to a very fractured court. The court needs to have some consensus building to to dispel any notion that it is a purely political body, which I think most people believe now it is. So I think it remains to be seen where she will end up on some of that, and it may be a little of both. She is no uh, wallflower, though. She will speak her mind, and she will do so with um, an intelligence that will be hard to argue with. It will be a matter of, of the rule of law and not politics. Well, I certainly am one who believes in bipartisanship and dialogue and hope against all hope that she can somehow build consensus there, um, particularly at a time when we all know that the court has lost a lot of credibility. It's probably at the lowest point it's ever been in terms of public perception. And, you know, things like the leaked Dobbs decision and all the politicization, uh, the complaints about Justice Thomas not recusing in cases where there appears to be a very clear conflict of interest. And I'm wondering, I mean, she's a great role model for future lawyers, for young black girls, for all women, for anybody who aspires to the court, because her record, as you have pointed out, 
qualifies her if she was a white man, she'd still be qualified. Right. Uh, she meets all of the criteria that anyone's ever, ever needed to be on the Supreme Court and more. Um, but do you think she can do anything to help with the credibility of the court? Or is that something that's beyond one justice? No, I don't think it's beyond one justice, but I do think it's going to take a little bit of time. And I do think it may end up being, you know, how decisions are framed, how um, how her dissents, if she writes the dissents, are, are framed and they're not bitter attacks like we have seen members of the court do. Um, I think if she is out and, and speaking publicly, you will not hear her do, for instance, what Justice Thomas did recently. And that is basically in Dallas when he was talking yeah. about conservatives and he was talking about the we this and the we that and and just bashing liberals. She is not going to do that. One of the yeah. things that she, I think, talked about with a lot of the senators uh, about Justice um, Breyer when she clerked for Justice Breyer of how he would often just walk out and say, I need to go to talk to Sandra, meaning Justice O'Connor, or Tony, meaning Justice Kennedy. And, and that collaborative effort, I think she can help get that through. But it look, it's it's. I don't think she understands, and as does, I think, most America. It's not going to be an easy task bringing con a consensus uh, right now. And it may not be possible, but if you can bring a little bit more uh, level of civility, uh, I think would help too. And she, she damn sure brings that. So this discussion makes me think about possible changes to the court. And of course, as you know, President Biden had appointed a commission to recommend changes and they really didn't come up with anything much of significance in my opinion. Uh, but based on your immersion in the court now, what do you think about some of the things that have been talked about, uh, setting term limits, expanding the court, expanding it to the number of circuits that there are now representing the enlarged population and the enlarged number of cases, um, creating a code of ethics that they would have to abide by since they are the only court that doesn't have ethics. What do you think? Are any of those good ideas, bad ideas, getting rid of the filibuster? That's another thing which goes beyond this because it's already eliminated for the court. But I, I'd love your opinion on, on those issues. Well, it's a, pr it's a pretty broad brush you're wanting me to paint with, Jill. Um, but um, let's take a couple, let me, let me put the caveat first. You know, Judge Jackson was also asked about this. For some reason, Republicans really were fixated on this notion that there are progressives who want to expand the court. Uh, she refused to answer that, and I think appropriately so. Justice Amy Coney Barrett wouldn't answer that in her confirmation. So everything I'm saying is kind of my perception. I don't want anything right. to be translated over to Judge Jackson. No, and I'm asking you solely as a former senator, as a current activist in the court, not activist, but currently <laughs> involved in the court, um, and just as a political person, I'm asking what you yeah. think. You, you know, look, I, I am, uh, I'm not in favor. I've never been in favor of enlarging the court. Um, I, you know, I, I, it's, it's unfortunate that uh, Democrats often just overlook judges and overlook the value of the judiciary. Uh, the, so, you know, my answer has always been, you should have voted. You need to vote going forward. And now you see where, where things are. I think nine has been there a long time. I think that that 
is a, a good number. I would not want to enlarge the court just to try to get accomplished what I particularly might want to get accomplished. I think it ought to be an incentive for people to get out there and vote and to, to, to make sure that their voices are heard not only in the executive branch and the legislative branch, but, but it will filter down to the executive, I mean, to the judicial branch that way. There are some things that were, were proposed about term limits that I don't, you know, that are interesting, that, but you would almost have to bring, you would almost have to choose current federal judges without changing the Constitution. There's a lot of difficulties in that. Um, you know, I, I was disappointed to see the filibuster eliminated when it came to judges uh, because I knew sooner or later it would be changed for Supreme Court justices. And I've always felt that uh, it, it would be easier for to get a nominee through that got some level of bipartisan support. Uh, I think we're in a situation right now, you're not going to see any changes and we need to basically live with where we are, which is nine Supreme Court justices. They will randomly uh, resign uh, or retire or uh, otherwise leave the bench on their own accord. And whoever the president of the United States is and whoever the Senate is will um, be responsible for the next nominee. And I think that's the way it's been. What I, what I don't believe, though, one of the things that I would be in favor of, if it could possibly done, is I, I don't think we should ever have another situation where one person controls the, the number of, of people on the court. Remember, we can talk about expanding, and, and all the Republicans were uh, opposed to expanding the court, but there's only been one person in the history of this country who unilaterally altered the number of justices on the Supreme Court, and that was Mitch McConnell. And for over a year, he was okay with having eight instead of nine. Well. I would love to see a rule within the Senate that, that puts some parameters on the ability to do that uh, so that no person, Republican or Democratic leader, could stop a nominee simply because it was in the same year uh, as a presidential term. If, it, if it's within a couple of months, I don't know what the number might be, but certainly I think there ought to be some rules that would require that to be in front of the judiciary, require it to be um, a, a, a confirmation hearing and a vote on the floor and let the chips fall where they're going to fall uh, at that. I think that that has been the, the singular biggest issue that people ought to really take a look at. And that could cut against Democrats sometime. It could cut for them sometime. I don't know how that would turn out, but it would be uniform and it wouldn't be up to the whim of the majority leader uh, to make that decision. There are so many things that should not be up to the whim and control of the leader. Totally uh, and that certainly is one of them. I, for one, believe that the president is the president until he isn't, which is at noon on the day of inauguration, and that he gets to exercise the full powers of the presidency until that time. And the hypocrisy of Mitch McConnell and pushing through Amy Coney Barrett while the voting was already underway, as opposed to saying a year before the election, you can, right. is, is obscene and very bad. But I totally agree, which is why, if you recall, I know I did, I think maybe Manchin, but Susan Collins certainly did as well. We mm -hmm. voted, we, we, we basically said before the nominee was coming up, this is not fair, 
before she was announced, this is not fair. I'm going to vote no uh, if this nominee comes, whoever it might be, comes beforehand. I totally agree with that. It's just it's hypocrisy at its highest levels. So let's end by briefly talking about the state of politics as we head to the midterm election. We were talking before we recorded this that you're about to vote. And um, I asked you a question. I thought it was actually a really um, depressing answer about the state of politics. I asked you um, whether or not there are any uh, crazy Trump MAGA people running. And you said um, the question is, who isn't a crazy Trump MAGA person running in the Deep South? And so I'm wondering, because you have a a unique perspective, um, you were a Democrat nominated in the Deep South and you are currently in Alabama. What messaging do you think Democrats should focus on to win in areas like the South and other Democrats um, and hopefully, you know, defeat these crazy MAGA Republicans? Well, first of all, I I think we, you know, I disagree with what the president and his team has been using the term ultra MAGA Republicans. That just reinforces the thought that this is make America great again, Republicans. And there's a lot of people that wear that as a badge of honor. What I think Democrats really have to do is we need to go back and we need to understand the numbers and we need to understand the dynamics of, of, of senatorial elections as well as presidential elections. And that is we are, give, we are li- leaving so many votes on the table in the South and the Midwest that we're not speaking to. People that voted Democratic for a long time, but then got pulled aside on culture wars uh, and are not. Um, and that's that's the most important thing to them at this point. And we're not really talking to the folks in the rural areas. We're not talking to what I, what Joan Williams over in California is called the white working class. We're not really speaking to those. We're speaking as elitist. Um, and I do think there's merit to, to the criticisms of some of the Democrats and their, their so-called cancel culture uh, in some of these universities where they just don't want conservative speakers coming in. There's a difference between that and having the Proud Boys uh, pre- uh, guy come in and, and incite violence. But I think we need to really get back to an idea that government is there to help people and government is helping people. Government is doing that through a number of programs. And guess what? We're not, all, we're not socialists because that's really a bad word in my neck of the woods and throughout so many areas of this country. We're not socialists. We don't want to defund the police. We want to support the police. And we've got to talk to those folks and let them know that we're not a bunch of satanic cultists that are, is going to you know, do all of these horrible things because that's what's happening. I, you know, right now, and Democrats have just gotten away from that. It's a difficult task because the brand is so toxic in so many areas of this country. Breaking through to that is not going to be easy. But I think it's something that Democrats have to do. And from the folks in Washington and the folks that are in Congress uh, in places, I, I think we just got to look in the fact that the Demo- Democrats as a whole and the country as a whole is not where the left wing of the party is. And if we want to progress, we've got to kind of start speaking a little bit together as one voice uh, and trying to work together to make sure that we can promote each other's agendas a little bit and we can accomplish so many things. We have so much in common, but our Democratic Party wants to fight and one side wants to hold the other side hostage. One side wants to object, uh, obstruct. We've got to get away from that somehow, some way. And there's got to be some voices out there, I think, talking about that and going into these areas to say, we can do this, but we need your help. We need the help of these rural voters. We need the help of other folks 
that we believe, uh, that I believe at the end of the day can be part of a reinvigoration. Those people are patriots. And at the end of the day, they may believe an election was stolen. Unfortunately, they may believe that because they've heard it so much. And, but at the end of the day, they're patriots and they don't want to see this country fail. And we've got to let them know that we are in that same boat, that we are protecting democracy as we know it. And we want their voices heard. uh, And we want to make sure that everything that we do is for the betterment of the people of this country. Democrats have lost that message a good bit. uh, And they've played a lot of politics that I think have have caused people to leave us. We got to get back. If we ever want to see uh, a Democratic majority leader in the Senate for more than two years, uh, we need to make sure we talk to those votes. We, if we need to see, want to see Democratic majorities in the House, we're going to need to talk to those folks because right now, right now, Jill, if in the in the Deep South, if we, if the election was held tomorrow and Democrats and Republicans held the same number of seats that they hold right now in the Deep South states, Democrats would have to win over sixty percent of the votes uh, of the houses uh, of the seats in Congress to have a one vote majority. That's not sustainable. You know, it's just not sustainable. Gerrymandering's got, damn, Victor, you just got me on a soapbox and I'm just going on and on here. It's just crazy. But gerrymandering is a huge problem for both Republicans and Democrats. And I wish we could get away from it. I'm going to stop now. (laughs) Well, fingers crossed in November, we have six months, which is an eternity in politics. So hopefully we can make some headway uh, uh, in reaching out to those voters. I'm wondering if, maybe this is the last question, uh, if you'll ever consider running again, and if not, what your future plans are for uh, the foreseeable future? Well, you never say never uh, on anything uh, right now. Um, I, I, I think with the right side of history pact that we've got going with the C4 called Every Voice and the research we're doing uh, in the South, um, I, you know, I want, I'm going to try to do my best to stay engaged. Uh, and that's going to be uh, challenging not only uh, folks from the right, but to some extent, it may challenge a little bit of the folks uh, on the left to try to get this this kind of center coalition. I think we need this this pro democracy coalition where we can argue political philosophies a little bit, but at the end of the day, we can also talk about protecting the institutions of government. So I'm going to be out there trying to help some of my former colleagues get elected, trying to help some um, open seat Democrats uh, Democrats get elected and doing some things. So, you know, we'll see what the future holds. Um, I, I never tried, I never thought the window would open up for me to run for the United States Senate in 2017. And it did. And I had three amazing years that I wouldn't take anything for. Who knows? You know, we'll see how things go. I'm not getting any younger. <laughs> well, Victor and I are going to be watching and uh, following you for sure. And we appreciate your time today and your service in the past. And maybe in the future. So thank you very much, Senator Doug Jones. My pleasure, Jill. Thank you. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of iGen Politics with Doug Jones and found it as interesting and enlightening as Jill and I did. We'll be back next week with another great episode of iGen Politics. In the meantime, we hope you'll follow us and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you follow your podcasts and that you'll subscribe to us on YouTube at Politicon's page, like this video and uh, click the bell for our weekly notifications every Wednesday. Thanks so much and we'll see you next week for another episode of iGen Politics.